The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads. Quit trying to email Natalie Portman and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 225 with guest Dan Appleman, recorded live Wednesday, March 28, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniak on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wonders, what the heck is a duty cycle? Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Uh, we're here for the first show of the week. And uh, what a show it's going to be. Hey, Richard. Hey, Carl. I'm super excited about this show. Uh, it was really <laughs> a fun show to put together. You know, it's always a gas when we get to interview someone sitting side by side. Yes. Quite literally, of course, because we share a microphone. Yeah. And and listen for Richard and Dan to just absolutely go off on a geek tangent. <laughs> I guarantee you 2% of our listening audience will know what the hell you're talking about. Well, Dan Appleman is one of my heroes, a guy that I modeled my, you know, sort of public career after. And he's an old time geek. So we yeah. just went, we went tearing down the old time geek space. It's a good show. Point. Yeah. Uh, but connections, what a great show. A uh, huge crowd. You know, for Orlando, which is usually the spring shows in Orlando they do are usually less attended. And I was very, very surprised at the huge number of people there. I think they had about 1,500 people. Yeah, and it was just hopping, too. Really a buzz kind of place. Yeah. Uh, Scott Guthrie was everywhere. Yeah. 
And uh, we did actually interview him uh, live with an audience. That's right. And we just, you know, we thought we were recording and it wasn't recording and we didn't get the recording. So that's the long and short of it. We're sorry. But uh, he was really saying more of what he said the last time we interviewed him. It's just now a lot of it is solid. He's right? a lot further along the path. Yeah. That's really an interesting guy to talk to. You know, you wouldn't realize this is a guy that leads a thousand folks. Yeah. It's just amazing. 600 something I think he said maybe maybe I don't maybe. know it's hard to keep track it of. was it's always lot. more it was a lot of people that he <laughs> that report to him well anyway uh, we got a few emails let's get to those and right. these, are, these are good this week um, you know they're usually good but we had some really fun emails this week uh, one I got from Michael Nee uh, and the subject is code vomit Nice. Hmm. Hello, Carl and Richard. I just wanted to drop you a mail to say I really enjoy the show, and you guys have finally broken me. Ooh. I'm one of these people who kind of fell into development from being an IT professional who learned Perl, then WSH and VBScript, then... It's a slippery slope into ASP, then ASP.net. The next thing I know, I'm doing VBNet classes and wondering how the hell I got here. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought of myself as a real developer. I was the guy. I was the guy you always talk about with the uncommented, undocumented code vomit that just about does the job, but then sometimes throws weird, scary error message, error messages. Anyway, I've listened to the show on my regular two-hour commute. Oh, ouch. Two-hour commute. Man. Oh. I'm just going to stop right there and say, way to go, man. <laughs> this is a dedicated person. Listen to the show on my regular two-hour commute for the last year or so, and the guilt you guys are laying on me has finally got through. <laughs> I know it's me you're talking about with the crappy code. Nice. So I finally accepted I am a developer, and I'd better start producing well-structured, documented, efficient code. Oh, and I'd better do some proper testing as well. <laughs> the cool thing is I'm actually enjoying my dev work a lot more now. I still do some IT Pro SQL stuff as well, and my apps actually work. And I don't have to keep going back and debugging them. Well, not as much anyway. So thanks. And how about some swag? <laughs> I'd love to parade up and down the office of the .NET Rocks mug. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. Mike Nee, London, the UK. Well, you got your wish, man. That was great. That's an awesome story. So what you got? You got a good one, too. Uh, directly related to last week's last show with Oren Eni. This is from Andrew Cates. And he says, I'm eagerly awaiting to hear the N-Hibernate show you broadcast. Because, of course, we talked about that show beforehand. I just hope you include another great ORM tool I've been using a while called Neo. Hmm. I used N-Hibernate before, but replaced it with Neo. They share many similarities, but Neo supports .NET datasets, data rows, and table tables, where N-Hibernate is the traditional POJO model. That's a plain old Java objects, POJO. Which is kind of interesting in .NET, isn't it? Yeah. Plain old <laughs> objects just mean, yeah. And, 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 and course, .NET would be poo. <laughs> <laughs> plain old objects. Uh, yeah, let's probably go with the pono anyway. Yeah, pono, which is almost another word that we don't like. Right. 
I think it would be wise to discuss Neo as well. I've been extending the base functionality of Neo to include many things like I binding list view and a better code generator that can be used as a plugin with VS 2005. The one that comes with the package off the website last year was only for VS 2003 and I wasn't happy with it. Hmm. Especially since it put everything in one file, which I don't like for source concerns. I also added support for SQL Everywhere data, database store and added sections that do not get overridden during the code generation process, so all the user's custom business logic stays during the regeneration of the code. Summary, both are great. In fact, I prefer N-Hibernate's POJO model when remoting value objects, but Neo is better as a business logic data access layer, in my opinion. Hmm. Your show rocks. I've been listening for a while now. I heard a quip a couple of shows back about losing weight from listening on a treadmill, and <laughs> I thought that was hilarious since I listened to a few of your broadcasts on my iPod while running the LA Marathon this year. Wow. Way awesome. to go. So, and he sent a picture of uh, him running with his iPod, so I guess he was listening to .NET Rocks at that point. Yeah. I know I actually looked at Neo, uh, and I've shrinksterized it for anybody else who wants to take a peek. It's at uh, shrinkster.com slash NJZ. That's November Juliet Zulu. Uh, It's a code house, and uh, my concern with Neo, of course, is that they haven't done anything since June of 2006. Hmm. So I'm worried that this project might be dead. Or maybe it's just perfect and they don't need to fix anything anymore. Maybe. But, of course, the source code is all available and so on. So it's got some possibilities. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Boy, um, it seems like people are really getting interested in ORMs these well, days. Well, yeah, that's what excites me is uh, that when I get, when the reaction of doing an ORM show is do more ORM shows. Yeah, maybe we're on to something. Maybe we are. It was just another technology in the list, but uh, it's getting a little bit more traction now. Hit some buttons anyway. Well, uh, the other announcements we have, of course, our friend Greg Brill down in New York City at Infusion, infusion.com, or it might be infusiondev.com. I'm not sure which. I think it's infusiondev.com. Anyway, uh, he's looking for, uh, always looking for talent, and uh, we've gone down there personally and checked it out. Nick Landry works down there, and uh, several other listeners who, and, and even some gurus in the industry have uh, gone to work for Greg. Um He's offering the following. You go to New York City, you work for him for a year, you do the New York City tour. He pays for your apartment. That's right. So you get to live in New York City in an apartment rent-free for a year, plus you get a New York City commensurate salary. And, uh, you know, if you need to fly home once in a while to see people, that's okay, too. So um, it's a great opportunity. We've been talking about it, and people are actually taking him up on it. You can check it out at Shrinkster dot com slash kh6 and also there's a gig in washington dc for aspnet gurus been getting a lot more interest in this one recently um now four or five people have gone through the process here this is uh, for people located near or willing to be relocated to washington dc and you have to be a sort of uh, you know a passionate aspnet developer you listen to dotnet rocks you follow Scott Guthrie's advice, and uh, you're golden. So if you're interested in reading up on that, it's at shrinkster.com slash MMJ. A couple of conferences to call out as well. Of course, uh, Mix 07 is coming up. That's right. And that's April 30th to May 2nd at the Venetian in Las Vegas. And a very special secret announcement, which we don't know what it is, is going to happen there. Yes, looking forward to finding out what that's all about. That's at www.visitmix.com. 
Yeah. And the other conference on the list here is DevTeach. DevTeach in Montreal. That's right. May 14th to 18th in Montreal, Quebec. Our friend JR, running the show as usual, will be there. I'll be there. Richard will be there. So we're looking forward to seeing you at DevTeach, and that's at www.devteach.com. And we are looking, we're, we're looking to put together the ORM Smackdown session at DevTeach. I think that's where it's going to happen, Richard. You think so, huh? Even if it doesn't happen on stage, we'll go out to a bar and we'll record it. And that- well, the bottom line, Neward and, and Oren are in the same place. Yeah. It's inevitable. That's like mixing together explosives. Yeah, so something's going to happen. It should be good, and, and a lot of <laughs> lot of uh, lot of food for thought. I'm sure. Uh, Tech Ed is going to happen here pretty soon in Orlando, right? Yeah, that's June fourth to eighth in Orlando. Wow. And we're definitely going to be there. Still working on the details of all the trouble we're going to get into while we're there. Of course, we're going to probably be back at the Netherlands this year. That's down in the fall. SDC, that's not to the fall. We're getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. All right. Well, uh, so what you're going to listen to now is a live recording that we did with Dan Appleman at Dev Connections. It was the kind of thing where we were in the speaker's lounge. We realized we hadn't talked to each other in a long time, and we just went next door to a quiet room, and uh, this is what happened. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. I'm here with Richard Campbell. We're at Dev Connections in Orlando, 2007. Hi, Richard. Hi, Carl. How you doing? Doing fine. We just got done uh, interviewing a show that we lost the file for. So uh, and it, it was serendipitous that Dan Appleman was here, and he has some new and great stuff to talk about. So we're we're here talking to Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, Carl. How are you doing? Uh, it's great to uh, talk to you again. It's been a long time. It's, it's been too long. And uh, what do you think of the conference, by the way? Uh, it's great. I, I like speaking at the Dev Connections conferences. Uh, you know, they treat the speakers right. They have a good uh, a good audience, interesting people. And, uh, of course, I get to uh, meet all the other speakers who we've become friends with over the years. Yeah. Do you do the uh, Las Vegas shows, too? I do the Las Vegas shows. Excellent. Yeah. That, and, that and SD West is pretty much all I do nowadays. It's funny how we usually only see each other at conferences. We never see each other elsewhere. If it wasn't for the conferences, how could you maintain these friendships with these speakers? Yeah, it's like it's like show friends. It's it's this an email and and an occasional IM, right? And and every time we see each other, it's you know somewhere else in the world, you know. Um, so what have you been talking about here at the conference? Well, I think the most interesting uh, talk I do here is the one on discoverability, uh, because it's it's really not a, even a technical talk. It's more about uh, the the life of a programmer and what it's like to be a software developer now, and and the things that all of us are are dealing with and feeling and uh, are sort of unwilling to admit sometimes, uh, you know, the, the fact that we're faced with just a, an overwhelming flood of technology. How do we keep up and how do we find information? It really seems like we've hit the peak at this point, or I'm sure it's only going to get higher. .NET is massive. Windows itself is, is bigger than ever. There's just so many things to know. It's crazy. It, it used to be, uh, you know, there's ever heard the old cliche, uh, it's not important what you know, it's just important that you know how to find it. Yes. And I never bought into that. Uh, I never really liked that cliche. I think it's important to know things. But the percentage of what we can know, the percentage of, of .NET, uh, not to mention other Windows technologies that we can know, is shrinking rapidly. It, yeah. It's growing faster than any of us can keep up. Right. And, you know, grab any speaker, 
you know, maybe get them a little drunk and they'll admit they feel the same thing. <laughs> well, it's so true. Um, we all need to know fundamentals. I don't think you're arguing that. But, you know, we all need to know, you know, how dispose works and all of that stuff and fundamental object oriented things. But you're right. There's so many things that I know I could write well, you know, give it enough time to go research it and find the right answers. And, and that's really what it's all about. Well, the problem isn't so much writing well at this point. It's how do you find solutions that exist? Because there's so many people working with .NET that when you run into a problem, whether it's a technical problem or even uh, looking for a way to implement something, you know someone out there has faced the same problem. So the real purpose of this talk was to help people get a grasp on how do you actually go out there and find solutions that already exist instead of getting frustrated or having to reinvent the wheel. So this isn't necessarily about discoverability of features in an application, which I've heard that term used for that particular, in that particular way. This is discoverability with a capital D, right? How do you discover the information that you need? Right. I mean, the first time uh, I mentioned the topic, someone said, oh, you're going to talk about IntelliSense. No, IntelliSense... Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> where I, that's where I was going right. to. It, IntelliSense is a gimmick. It's a great gimmick. I mean, it's it's no doubt it's a great gimmick. But yeah, I couldn't code without it now. Right. Yeah. Uh, what what do you feel is like the number one tool that every software developer really needs to succeed? Well, I think the answer is Google. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's not .NET Rocks? No, no, it's not. Because you can find the .NET Rocks info you need through Google. And the MSDN info. And pretty much any other info. Right. And every blog, every, every, everything. It's, it's all about the search engine. That's where all the information is. Right. So uh, have you heard about something they call Google Custom Search? Uh, no, I haven't. Now, I know that th if you go to google.com slash Microsoft, somebody has set up some, they or they have done, or somebody has set up some kind of search that limits it to Microsoft. But I don't know what that means. Uh, well, you certainly can do site-specific searches, and uh, if some if Google actually set up a slash Microsoft, that's great. But Google, Google Custom Search is, I think, the the most amazing thing that most people don't know about yet. Cool. In fact, I, I woke up one morning and I was just sort of doing my my usual quick checking what's new, and I saw this thing called Google Custom Search, and I had a new site launched by the end of that day. Wow. And because uh, I was so excited about this concept. The, the concept of Google cu Custom Search is that you can create your own filter, essentially, your own s sort of custom search engine that if people go through this, it will search the sites that you specify. Huh. Right? So basically that morning I said, well, this is great. What I really need is a .NET search engine. I need something with all the power of Google that only searches .NET sites and only searches the good .NET sites. So... I went and I said, okay, I'm going to build this for me, right? This is a tool that I can use. And I found search.net.com was available, which was hmm. stunning. Really? And uh, Search.net. Search, search, yeah, search.dotnet.com was available. And I had it launched by that afternoon with, at the time, there were about 15 sites on it. Now it's more like 60 or 70, I think. So how does it work? Is there like a list of sites or something that you, you manage yourself? Right. I, I manage the list of sites. And it's, it's more than, when I say 60 or 70 sites, it's actually more than 60 distinct sites. For example, all of blogs.microsoft.com or blogs.msdn.com, which is it, right, is, uh, is included, which means I'm searching all of the dev blogs, all the Microsoft yeah. developer blogs. And 
the idea here is to really get some quality uh, search results. And it's worked really, really well in the sense that I'm, I'm getting the quality of Google, but I'm really fine-tuning it into into sites that have either uh, unique concept uh, content or articles, the ones that, you know, like, or expert exchange where there are good answers to questions. And I'm able to avoid a lot of, say, the, the troll sites, you know, the ones that are just republishing the same content. You've seen those, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're biggest pain in the ass on the internet. Right. So, you know, you, you, you look for a particular phrase and you get the same content back on 50 different sites because they're all just trolls. They're, they're all just, just, yeah. Right. Regurgitating. So, Right. So in order in order to get on search.net you actually have to have original content. You can't just be republishing stuff. So this isn't like a so this isn't like some kind of bot that you have that just goes and finds sites and No, this this is me. So you handpick the sites. I handpick the sites. Every single one that's submitted, you go to the site, you look to see if it's relevant. It's it's not even submitted. For example, uh, uh, I'll put on people's sites who I know have good content, like Juval's site is on there. He doesn't yeah. even know it's on there. I think Bill Vaughn's site's on there. Yeah. You know? Wow. So uh, That is really, really valuable. I think that's where the value is. You know, I'm going to search sites that are handpicked by Dan Appleman. Yeah. I think it's a powerful idea because somebody's doing, you know, Dan's doing that key work of uh, picking what's real content, and then we're still getting the power of Google to search it properly. Yeah, and it's not just anybody. It's Dan, right? Well, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, that that's value. But, but I, I did an example in the talk and uh, on a particular search, for example, RSS. Now, that, of course, is a great generic term. And if you go to Google or if you go to Live.com, you get good generic results. The number one result, of course, is the source of all information, which is Wikipedia, uh, is the number one result for almost everything nowadays, which is yeah. pretty <laughs> scary and impressive and I think at the they same had time. a meltdown at Wikipedia recently, didn't they? That, yeah, I think there's like a shakeup. Well, I think every time Stephen Colbert talks about something. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you, you get, so you search on RSS and you get, uh, Wikipedia and then, and then you get particular popular feeds like the New York Times feed or the Boston Globe feed. And then maybe you get the definition of RSS, which are great generic RSS things, but have nothing to do with .NET. Right. Now you go to search.net.com and do a search on RSS. And on the first page, half the entries are the guys who wrote the RSS engine at Microsoft. Yeah. Right. So right. really serious technical content or examples of how to implement it and, and so on. That's which, excellent. You know, so it's doing that kind of filtering for you as well. So I find myself using it uh, sort of for, for .NET. I, I tend to use it as my first response. And then if I'm not happy, then I go to Google and I'll see if there if there's any other things. And every now and then I find something new and then I can add that site to search.net. Wow. Fabulous. And how, you said you had 60 or 70 sites? Something like that. I don't, but those I don't, are front sites. I mean, they, they can be deep as well. Yeah. For example, all the MVP sites. If you're on uh, the MVP's uh, blog collection, then automatically those are, uh, are there as well. Are the, you getting a lot of traffic? I don't know. I haven't actually checked my search. I mean, oh. I'm not doing this for money, so no, no, yeah, so, yeah. So I, I don't actually bother keeping track of how many uh, how many uh, visitors I yeah, have. This was a tool for you. You wanted to be able to search that information out. You just right. You just let everybody else have access. Everybody to it too. else is welcome to join in. Right. One one of the other cool things is they have something called refinements, which is a really cool thing where you can categorize the sites and then refine further. So, for example, uh, if you do a search 
you get a set of results. But some of the sites, like the MVP sites and the dev blog sites, I consider those expert sites, which means that I have a high degree of confidence that any content on there is going to be really, really good. So you can refine mm. further and say, I only want the expert sites on this search. Wow. And then it narrows it down even further. Or you can search for the ASP.net and so on. That's, that's awesome. It's a great idea. And, and it's the other kind of discoverability. It's where do I go and find my facts for figuring out what to do next? Right. Uh, a related site that's search.net.com slash components is uh, a sort of another twist on, you know, I'm a component vendor, but right. I also know that people are always looking for components. So there are some great uh, places that sell components, and there are probably some that aren't so great. Uh, but I thought it would be really cool to get a custom search engine that actually searches component vendor sites. Huh. So there's a second one, and that actually has about 400 uh, links on it right now. Now, would you actually go to a, somebody who resells components? Like, uh, who is the, who are the guys that resell? Right, like for component example, one, a component, component source. source? Yeah. Right. And that's a great place to look for components, too. And, you know, we sell our stuff through component source, and right. they're great people. I like them a lot. Um, but I thought in addition to the stuff that they've sort of added to component source because component right. source only has like the description information yeah, that's true this searches the entire site for each one of these component vendors right and including some of the real tiny ones that basically is just a blog right oh that's cool so you know it's another just sort of a, a cool thing i threw in you um you strike me as a sort of renaissance man you know because <laughs> yeah because you know you 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 had a wildly successful run of years with your books and and every vb programmer you know had that book on their on their shelf including me you know the api book and desaware you know your your tools spy your spyworks tools and and all that stuff great stuff licensing system now the yeah. licensing system you have ebooks you know and and you did a book on um uh, always use protection, which was on well, for teens, right, right? On security, which was a great book that I still reference when I'm talking to my kids. Um, and you just strike me as some guy who just is into different things, not just it's not all programming. Well, it's you know I'm definitely into different things, but the interesting thing about it is that it's not so much that I I have such an eclectic taste in in things that I'm interested in. It's that. The things I'm interested in are not necessarily the things I'm supposed to be, according to, say, the Microsoft marketing thing. For example, right, right now, I'm supposed to be interested in WCF or, yeah. or WPF and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, frankly, they're, they're interesting, but part of discoverability is deciding what you're not going to bother learning about. <laughs> Boy, that's true, isn't it? Because, I mean, we can't keep up. You know, we... We know we cannot keep up. You, you know, you yourself were mentioning earlier that you can't keep up with all the information. So what you choose to ignore is as important or more important than what you choose to study. Right. And, and, and don't feel like you're doing yourself a disservice by ignoring things. No, not at all. Uh, you know, WPF is a great thing to ignore right now because, you know, a year from now, there are going to be better tools. I, hopefully, I'll never have to look at the XAML stuff. Uh, right. So, <laughs> you know, same thing with WCF. You know, I'm going to wait until Juval explains it and other people figure out the plumbing. <laughs> and then I'll deal with it in the simplest manner possible. Yeah. This is the same thing we saw with stuff like web services. You know, at the beginning, you had to deal with the XML and the plumbing, and, and there was weird kits to try and put stuff together, and it was hard, and now it's invisible. Yes. And I got to expect WCF, WPF, 
totally invisible in another couple of years. Yes. And and it's possible that I'll be able to get away with waiting for a couple of years before I need to worry about those technologies. You don't have any pain points right now that would be solved by being an early adopter into those technologies. Right. So so my, my curious, I can sort of have enough freedom by, by discarding some of these things I'm supposed to be studying. <laughs> I have the freedom to explore some of the things that I want to be studying that are interesting. For example, so for exa- yeah, let's talk about some of those Last things. week, I wrote my first module for .NET Nuke. Cool. Now, that, that, that's a, an open source CMS system for ASP.NET. Um, I, I actually was very impressed. It took me a while to get my head around the architecture, but once I got it, I said, this makes sense. I know that they inherited a, a prototype from Microsoft that was mm-hmm. so-so, and, but they've really re-engineered it. It's got a very nice architecture now, and, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and frankly, if a CMS-type system like that can be extended to do what you want, then nobody in their right mind should build an ASP.NET site using uh, the basic components and, and Visual Studio. Now, I think we're really there now where you should never be starting with a blank page anymore. There's so many good... I mean, .NET Nuke is one, Community Server is another. Heck, even SharePoint qualifies. There's a bunch of ways to get a whole lot of content without writing all the code yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were talking about this earlier, that we're wiser programmers now. We don't see that the first answer is write code. That's actually the last answer. And the final resort is, okay, I'll code this. Exactly. Exactly. Unless, of course, you have all the time in the world and you just like to code for fun. In that case, knock yourself out. I I code code for learning and I code for fun. Um, You know, I've had a chance to explore some other technologies. You know, I I probably shouldn't admit it here in public, but uh, I learned PHP recently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I'm running I'm running I'm it I'm running it cough. under Windows. Uh, I actually, you know, that was just funny. I I have never seen PHP. I don't know anything about it, so I'm I'm not in a good position to make fun of it. I've programmed a PHP. I never told you that, but it's more like ASP used to be. Yes, it's like it's, ASP it's used a, to it's be. It's your classic write-only style, just slam the code into the page kind of language. Well, you know, yes, you can do it that way, but you can also be smart about it, and you can put all the functionality in this in separate files so that the amount of PHP in the page is no more invasive than the amount of ASP.NET tags in a page. Sure. Which is a really good way to program in general. I mean, I've seen enough... Separation. I've, I've seen ASP... Well, it's not just that level of separation, but I've seen uh, uh, ASP.NET projects that were a disaster for the client because you literally had to have Visual Studio. You had to have a Visual Studio developer to rebuild any time they wanted to make even simple changes. Yeah. And, you know, here you had a company that had Dreamweaver programmers who couldn't touch the site that was built for them. Right. As soon as they, as soon as a Dreamweaver touches an ASP.NET page, all heck breaks loose. It goes crazy. Unless, unless your ASP.NET developer understands that people with Dreamweaver are going to be using it understands how to write really smart ASP.NET code. A code that's well protected so that the Dreamweaver guys can still work. That's well protected and well managed. You know, maybe, for example, remembering to turn off view state so that when they rearrange things, it doesn't blow things up. Uh, it's understanding that you can actually write uh, ASP.NET controls that stand alone, right? That don't even need Visual Studio. Right. right. I mean, you can have they can have an ASP.NET page with no code behind and you just give them the tag 
right and and reference the 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 uh the component and it'll suck it in for you so you don't even have to stick with the traditional asp.net postback model to make some really cool things happen well and the real issue here is you should not need an asp.net programmer to maintain content yet the design patterns the quote best practices that are taught Aren't, don't take that into account. I guess that's true. But now you get back to your original comment about .NET Nuke and these other frameworks, which are really about separating structure and content. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, have, what did you do with PHP? What was your sort of test project? Well, uh, it, it's not, it wasn't a test project. It was, it was production code. Wow. Uh, what basically happened is, is my sister is, is a great web developer. I mean... Yeah, Rowan. Yeah. And you've met her. Hi, Rowan. And do you remember how good she was then? <laughs> she was great. She's beyond great now because she is, she is one of those rare beings who, who has a, a breadth of technology. She, like, she, she, she knows about how to find solutions that are building it yourself and yeah. she'll and she knows how to find solutions anywhere asp.net php whatever so you know she she knows how not to waste the client's money she's also very responsible but the real killer is she also has the marketing background so she can come into a company and she can explain to them you know when they say here's what we want you say no that's not what you want here's what you want right <laughs> and 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 here's how you get the usability and here's where you got to do the accessibility and yes you do have to test it on half a dozen different browsers and here's why and uh, you know and by the way we can get you halfway there using this piece and halfway there using this piece and and you know she literally she'll play with NetSuite she'll play in Salesforce she'll assemble these things together and and come in and just does an amazing job for these for these companies and you know anytime that she leaves or you know project ends and they bring on someone else it takes like two people to replace her and i, I we have documented cases now where you know once she left their monthly web budget doubled and tripled just oh wow and you know so she spoils her customers but but i'm one of the resources for her Sure. So when she has an ASP.NET client, you know, she'll say, hey, Dan, could you do this? You know, like I need a redirection script or I need a validation script or I need this kind of thing. And, you know, for me, it's great because, you know, she's dealing with the client. So I don't have to be, right. the, I don't have to play the consultant and worry about the billing and all that stuff. I just come and give her what she needs. And, and recently it was, um, you know, we have this PHP thing that we need to do. And it, uh, it was a document, simple document management thing that none of the, pieces that they found weren't quite right and you know basically i said okay well you know i've been interested in learning php so i'll cut you a deal i'll do this at you know an incredible cut rate price and i'll learn on it and uh it was great php it's it's, it's not hard to do and the product's shipping and i haven't heard anything about it so i guess it's working have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in Windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps, but unfortunately that's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. There is WPF, of course, but that requires you to adopt a whole new programming model. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, complex gradients, and all that in classic Windows Forms? How cool would your application be then? Well, it's going to stand out. And it's definitely going to look nice. Stop envying and start delivering great experiences today. Telerik Rad Control Suite for WinForms offers the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik controls. Chances are that you can do it. 
Join the Telerik Windforms Challenge today to explore the controls in a fun and engaging way. The challenge is a mini quiz that shows off the unique features of the controls. In just 10 to 15 minutes, you can see how you can make your desktop apps much more appealing. And you can win a product license by simply answering five questions correctly. And everybody who completes the challenge is automatically entered into the drawing for the grand prize. Get this, a 50-inch plasma TV. Check out Telerik Rad Controls for Windforms and join the Windforms Challenge today at www.telerik.com slash contest. It's amazing how much... Uh is in common between these languages. Like there's certain fundamentals that we know you knew what to go looking for. I need to find out how do I insert text? How do I pass a variable? What are my looping constructs like? What are my conditional constructs like? There's all the things you know you're going to need and you just got to learn their version of the rules. And, and this is this is where part of discoverability comes in. And when I talk about discoverability, I talk about, you know, there are three things you need. You need to know found fundamentals, Right, your fundamental concepts, you need to know key technologies and you need to know where to find everything else. And one of the fundamental concepts is computer science, right? I've always loved languages, right? So I know what makes a language. So, you know, when I say, yeah, I learned PHP in two days, it's, it's not bragging. It's not exaggerating. I know what a language is supposed to have in it. So it's just a matter of getting familiar with the syntax, reading through the the documentation a couple of times and, and every now and then going back to remind myself of how something is done. Yeah. Dealing with sort of key resource things. If I'm doing web development, then I need to know where the cookies are stashed and how I get and manipulate those and and that kind of stuff that's specific to web. So it's obviously the language construct is one piece, but also that collection of resources for the kind of work we're doing. Right. What's, how does PHP talk to a database? I know it will. I just got to know how that one works. Right. Curiously easy, isn't it? Though, you know, it's funny because one of the people in the session talked about PHP and when I mentioned it, he mentioned their documentation, you know, is wikified. So in their documentation, you can actually see comments from dif- different people who've been programming PHP. Well, that must be quite interesting. Is there any? Are there any comments from a coming from an ASP.NET angle in the in the wiki in the wiki documentation? Well, the PHP obviously is all focused on PHP. Sure. Right. But what's interesting is, have you heard about the MSDN wiki? Uh, or, you know, I heard about the MSN wiki. I haven't seen it. Also, now it's called community content. Right. So if you go to msdn.microsoft.com. And you scroll down in the .NET framework, the bottom part, anybody can add comments to it. Yeah. And I think that is potentially an amazing discoverability tool. And I don't know if it's going to catch on. Uh, one of the people in the talk felt that maybe it was a cultural thing and that you know Windows developers, .NET developers would not really go for that. I think it's way too early. I think nobody knows about it yet. Yeah. Yeah, you may be right. Uh, although, you know, we see a lot of we see a lot of wikis in in the blogosphere anyway, you know, people who are into into wikis. So, um yeah, no no. And what do we, I guess the real question is, what are we looking for in a comment? Are we looking for sample code or, you know, I, I'm thinking in terms of, I had this issue. I couldn't figure it out. I went, I went into the documentation. I got to here. This gave me the lead to solve this. Now, do I need to write a comment about that? Because I've already solved it with the information that was there. Right. You're, you're asking for a certain amount of altruism. You're asking for people after they've solved something to go back to the .NET documentation in the relevant place and take a moment and say, by the way, for example, uh, one I recently added had to do with uh, a talk on tracing and logging that I'm doing where 
uh, custom attributes on a custom trace listener don't load during the constructor. Every other attribute loads during the constructor, but custom attributes, they're not available at that time. Hmm. So you've got to actually have a little design pattern where when you need the attribute, you go and check whether it's been set yet. And if not, then go ahead and, and try to read it in. So, you know, this is a useful bit of information that was buried in, in a hidden corner of one of the dev blogs is where I finally found it. It's like, okay, that makes sense. Well, no, it doesn't make sense, but now at least I understand it. And uh, I took the time under the trace.attributes to write a little segment and explain that. Hey, Dan, let's talk about your tools, about the tools that you sell. And I know you don't like to get on a show like this and, you know, market pitch, but you have some pretty unique tools that you sell. So really the, the, the biggest tool that we sell right now is a licensing system, right? So, uh, because one of the things that, that when .NET came out, uh, we had to license our own products for one thing, but also you had this idea of strong naming. So for the first time, it seemed possible to create a kind of licensing that you could really have sort of a cryptographic chain of security going pretty much the whole way, you know, with activation and, you know, tied into you know, your strong named assemblies instead of relying on secrets. And uh, I wrote the licensing system and uh, it's been really nice. You know, it's, it's sort of an infrastructure product. It's very adaptable and people have been deploying it in all sorts of different ways and it works with web services. And Now, did this and, come out of your experience with other licensing systems and finding deficiencies or was it just like, I don't even want to go there. I'll just do my own. Well, at the time, nobody had something for .NET. Okay. Right? They were all the old style, you know, either dongles or right. secrets or hiding the registry or who knows the various yeah. techniques. There wasn't anything that was really based entirely on uh, the fact that it's possible to secure a .NET application by strong naming it and, you know, tightly binding it to a particular assembly. So, you know, we were able to really reduce the, the surface vulnerability. And, you know, I've had an interest in cryptography and security sure. going back a long way. You, you, you wrote an obfuscator. And I, you, you, you know, and I wrote an obfuscator application and an ebook on it. it, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wrote a, a book on security for teens and so right. on. So uh, it just seemed like a natural fit of an interesting project to work on. And like many projects, it started out and it sort of became, it reached the point where it became real. So, you know, that's that's sort of the big product right now. You know, we we actually did just ship Spyworks 8. Now, I think when I think Spyworks, I think of like, you know, in a VB app looking at the messages and API calls in the .net world, where does where does that fit? I well, mean, how does that work? You know, it, it, that that's a real that's a real interesting thing because of course, at the time Spyworks was a brilliant name for a product because you were spying on the Windows message right. stream. Of course, today it's an absolute awful name for a product. Right, because you know everyone oh spyware spyware you know so yeah, right. so in it's fact very one, close to one spyware. of the big changes one of the big changes for this version was you know it has a completely new set of components which none of them have the word spy anywhere remotely associated with them <laughs> <That's good. laughs> because you know people would see it on their system and they they think it was spyware they think it was spyware were you actually being picked up by any of the software out there that's supposed to clean this stuff up yeah but the the reputable ones were really good about oh yeah we understand components and taking us off the list pretty quick okay but but you know there was um 
That's <laughs> funny. The whole thing's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm going to label my spyware spyware. Yeah. <laughs> I will destroy your computer. But, Don't worry. So, so that, I'm okay. that was one of the changes. You know, you asked why people would use it for .NET because uh, there's still a need for, uh, for global hooks for system hooks or people want to subclass other windows to do to control other applications and things like that uh you know accessibility to help the you know handicapped or or you know there are legitimate reasons that you would want to do more global hooks uh and there are also a number of functions that are useful even within an application though it's it's not needed as much and just because net has changed the programming model somewhat windows is still windows there's still plenty of messages flying around oh absolutely and subclassing is still subclassing it's absolutely never going to go away and and you know to try to subclass another application is still a tough 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 thing to do yeah so you know the other ch- other changes we made is uh we made it work under vista at least as far as vista uac allows things to work so okay. you know which means you have to be an administrator if you want to hook or subclass other administrative tax tasks okay uh things like that uh but the other thing is you know, one of the reasons that the product had been caught erroneously as spyware is because, unfortunately, spyware authors would sometimes use it. You know, oh boy, keystroke filter. Hmm, right. And we had no way to stop that. <laughs> These are your customers yes. using your product inappropriately. Yes. And this was not Great. good. I mean, we don't want customers like that. No. So what we actually did for this version is we actually added a subtle way of crippling spyworks. Which the idea was to make it particularly useless for those kind of purposes while keeping the legitimate use. So, for example, if it detects that you are trying to hook a keyboard or a message that's destined to a password styled edit box, it will throw them out. You awesome. can't capture them. Take because there's, that. there's no legitimate <laughs> use for that. Right. Right. Um, the other thing is we don't, we don't hook or subclass browser windows. Because those are such a broad target for yeah. people who want to, you know, intercept passwords and user IDs and stuff like that. So if we detect it as a browser window, we just we just don't we don't pick up the messages. That's great that you did that. This is a long way. I mean, I use Spyworks too. This is a long way from where you started. I mean, what an interesting set of problems that this perfectly reasonable thing for working for this very com- with this complex beast that is Windows, and now you're up against all this sort of insanity. Yeah. It's, so, a, it's not the product you started with by a, a it, substantial margin. It's not. But, you know, it still lets you do things like you can export functions, which is something you even now C-sharp and VB.net can't do if you want to do like an old-style exporting. Right. Control panel applets, we do things like right. that. Uh, we also have the NT service toolkit, which, and of course, you can do services using VB.net and C-sharp, sure. right? Uh, what we give you are a couple of other cool features, the biggest one being that when you build a toolkit uh, service with our toolkit, it pretty much automatically exposes both a .NET remoting and a COM interface. So wow. if you want to control the service, that becomes a, just a, a trivial matter. You know, That's and, very and cool. so doing that kind of client service stuff. Also, you don't have to do an installer. You know, service installers are a pain. You don't have to do that. It just it self installs, and you've got some of the cool debugging features and and stuff like that. So, do you still ship source? You shipped source with your tools. Yeah, one time? We, we don't ship source with the licensing system unless you're willing to pay us a lot of money. Okay, because it's a licensing system. You sure, know? but all of the other products ship with source code now. That's great. So you know, if somebody nefarious wants to go ahead and create their own version. 
the spyworks that hooks you know that for spyware they can do that but they just can't do it with our components i gotta hand it to you dan out of all of the vendors you know back in the days of crescent software and micro help and you know apex and all those you're like the only one that has not changed like the same name same people same tool set you know you, you didn't sell to a a big company yeah uh, but it's, congratulations, it's always man. been it's been a, it's a family business you know people still you know they get our products and they can still talk to me and i'm still glad to talk to them and, and, and you made it through some really brutal migrations the vbx to ocx migration 16 to 32 bit and and into the .NET world and their model of remoting i mean there's some big, been some big changes in 10 plus years it's uh it's got to have been an adventure to say i've, I've got i've got to think that every time Microsoft made a move, you sort of sat back and said, now, which of my products is still relevant? Oh, yes, absolutely. Every, yeah. every single time. And, you know, that's just, uh, that's just the, the name of the dealing with the Microsoft universe. You know, you know, I talked to Ethan Weiner a couple of weeks ago and he told me that, uh, he still gets an occasional call for people who want to buy quick pack professional or PDQ or one of those old products. And he's, he has the authority to sell it. So every once in a while, he'll sell one of those to somebody who's still doing work in quick basic or PDS seven or something like you, that. You can buy from us today. Spyworks 2.1 VBX. With source code. <laughs> wow. And, and my, my Windows 3 customers will be so excited. I know it, 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 sounds, it sounds crazy, but old, old software does not die so easily. No. You're right? right. And uh, while admittedly it's been a very long time, I think we sold one of the VBX packages this year. Again, it was a legacy thing. But uh, absolutely people are still doing com and they have to maintain this stuff. And it does not make sense in many cases to go through the expense of migrating these applications to .NET. Sometimes, yeah. And uh, I understand that the VB6 runtime is shipping in Vista. It is. Yeah. It is. I, I think it. I, I think VB6 runs better than the earlier .NET frameworks or something like that, I heard. <laughs> it's I, certainly faster. It's not managed code, but it's certainly faster. You can't argue with that. I don't know if you follow my blog. I, I had a couple of Vista... I wouldn't call them rants. Uh, the latest one was slight, a slight rant on, on danappleman.com. Uh, I, I, I am, I mean, I love Microsoft. I think their developers are great, but their marketing department are, they're nuts. They're telling ordinary people <laughs> to upgrade to Vista. Yes. And yeah. that is, that's irresponsible. It's, it's criminal. I mean, if an ordinary person has a computer that works... Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Yeah, I mean, the, the advice I've been giving everybody is you do not upgrade to Vista. You buy a new machine with Vista on it. Right. And nothing else. Absolutely right. Because, and even Microsoft, their own internal numbers show that maybe half of the software that exists out there doesn't run on Vista. So if someone does upgrade to Vista... Odds are that half of their stuff isn't even going to work. So what? They have to go out and buy and upgrade their software? I mean, it's great for the software vendors, but it's not fair to the customer. Right. It's also a one-way trip. You do that to your machine and you haven't taken an image backup or something beforehand. Oh, boy. You're doomed. Yes. You know, that's it. Your machine is ruined. And, and the number of people, including folks in this very room that have upgraded the machine to Vista, played with it for a while and went, okay, there's some showstoppers here and then reverted back because we took images. Yeah, I, I held off buying my new laptop until I could buy it with Vista on it because I didn't want to go through that. I knew better. You need those drivers in order. You need somebody else out there who's fixed it and made it right before you use it. I, I did almost that. I, I did get my laptop before I could get Vista, but 
what I did was I got uh, I got a ThinkPad that I knew that Vista drivers would be coming out, but then I put on Vista 64. And let ah. me tell no 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 let me tell you something. If you're a developer, if you're a developer, and you don't have to run all the other crap out there, right? All you have to do is run, you know, Visual Studio and and your core technology stuff for developer. Vista 64 is so sweet. Well, you know, I I agree completely. That's why I bought a Dell M90 with 64-bit Vista pre-installed. But because I do mostly infrastructure-related stuff, I'm running VPC 2007. So, 4 gigs of RAM and everything's in a VPC. It's brilliant. It's the best machine I've run on yet. Yes, and and that's exactly the the developer environment. is is 64-bit Vista with virtual PC to, to do all the legacy stuff. Maybe dual boot so that you still have an XP. So, I spent last year i spent ten thousand dollars on a new desktop machine i have eight 500 gig drives in a raid zero plus one stripe so two terabytes mirrored i have like you know a, a dual core two dual core amd Italy chips, uh, you know the specs are just ridiculous, and I'm think, and I have like a, you know, a double dual DVI card, thinking that you know I'm going to run Vista on this. So I go to install Vista, and everything works, and then I reboot, and it hangs, it's hung, dead, not going any further. So I've still got uh, XP64 on that, and um, one of the things I'm going to do when I get back is try to troubleshoot that. But, you know, how do you troubleshoot an, an installation that hangs, you know? It, yeah, I was, I was very skeptical uh, in terms of how to get up on 64 bits because, you know, the mainstream's not there yet, so they're not putting the kind of attention into it, I think, that... You know they are into the 32-bit installs. Well, it's all it's all about the drivers and and 64-bit demand certified drivers. So actually, getting a full set. I'm sure your problem, Carl, on that machine is that your motherboard, which is an exotic motherboard, doesn't have the right drivers and may never. One of the things that I saw though that I noticed was if you you have to you can't boot the installation. DVD, you have to, you have to install it from another version of Windows. At least that's my, what my experience was. I don't know because no, I I booted sixty four bits. You booted the, the I booted DVD. This, I booted a, a sixty four bit ISO. Okay. Well, anyway, my experience was that when it comes up online and, and you're you have a connection, you have an internet connection. Before it installs, it goes out and tries to download the latest drivers that it needs. Really? Yes. Nice. I had that experience. That was on another computer that I tried to install it on at home. But that assumes you, it has the internet driver. The, yes. The so first you, driver. thing you have to have is network. Right. But yeah, I was connected and, and it, it went out and it gathered all of the drivers. So I figured that if the drivers were out there, it would get them. They may not be out there yet. But they may not be out there yet. Now, I know NVIDIA has may still have a problem with a chipset on a motherboard. I think it's Enforce 4 that they're just not supporting it yet. You know? It's, it takes time. I mean, drivers are, are black, black magic anyway. They are. And you the know? motherboard drivers are about the most crucial drivers that you can get for Vista. And also the most voodoo-ish, too. But I mean... Look at the trouble that we've had, and we were supposedly experts in all of this stuff. How can you possibly say to a regular mortal computer user, go upgrade Vista? 
You know, right. Just go for it. But, but, but this worry, is what Microsoft's doing. They've got the ads out there everywhere. This is what they're doing every day. They're telling customers upgrade to Vista. And, and this is a horrible thing to do. And it's not the developer's fault. Okay, next topic. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're all in agreement. I, violent agreement there, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I'm interested more of your insight around uh, your experience with UAC, because so much of the kinds of projects you work on, the kind of products you make, run squarely into Vista UAC. Yeah. Don't, Those don't Mac you, ads were great, Don't you love they? that Mac ad? <laughs> oh, man, that is so, so funny. <laughs> You know, um, I I understand UAC, and I understand why they broke compatibility for Vista. Yeah. And in the long term, those are the right things to do, right? And it definitely has been my experience that over time, the number of UAC pops go down. You, you, you get a sense that you you get settled in your machine, everything's set up the way it's supposed to be set up, and you just don't get bugged quite as much. Uh, partly that, and you say, okay, yes, allow this thing to happen all the time and so on. But but it's also uh, that software developers are going to get smarter, right? It, think about the transition from 16 to 32 bits. I remember. It was not an easy time. It was not an, it was not an easy time at all. And, you know, at first you had the problem of trying to run 16-bit applications in compatibility mode. And, yes. And, you know, it was very problematic, which is why people kept their 16-bit systems. Right. right? And, and we never really solved that problem. We just started using 32-bit for everything. Yes. In other words, the developer started writing clean 32-bit code. Right. And what's going to happen is developers are going to write clean Vista code. Yes. It's just going to take a while. And that's really a, a awful lot of the n- a really annoying UAC pop-ups are actually flagging your application's misbehaving. It's doing something that I've been told not to let it do. Right. And, and eventually those, those apps have to be fixed. Right. See, the real, the real problem isn't that transition. The problem is that they stopped shipping XP. Right, they didn't stop shipping 16-bit operating systems when they went to 32. There was a, yeah. a multiple-year time period where, you know, by the time they phased out the last 16-bit operating system, everything from the craziest game, everything ran on 32 bits. Everything ran on Windows 2000. There was no problem. Here, what they've done is they've done a similar transition from 16 to 32 bits in terms of the applications that can run, the quirkiness, the problems, and they killed the old line. Yeah, and that—that's the problem, not the UAC or the the strategic decision to break uh, compatibility. So, let me ask you a question, Richard, because I know you're like Mr. Raid, and every time I have a question about Raid or hardware or anything, I go right to Richard Campbell. He's the man. So, uh, you know, I have this Raid system now. I've got like every piece of software that I own, and you know, all that stuff on this Raid stripe. If I get a new motherboard. Now, granted, the motherboard is doing RAID for the system drive, which is not the RAID drive, but I have a card for the big drive, the big honkin' RAID stripe. If I get a new motherboard, is that data going to stay there? Maybe. <laughs> well, because it's a card, yeah, most likely you'll be able to move the drivers and so forth over to it, but it's going to be very frightening to do that. Right. Take backups first. Of course. Yeah, of course. And lots of them. Or or pull out is it is it a striped or a or mirrored? It's a uh, both, so right. zero plus one. So two stripes of four or five hundred gig drives mirrored. Right. So all you, at you could like take one of the mirror sets offline completely. That's true. And uh, 
And that gives you sort of your ultimate... Is this like all your .NET rock stuff? Just or? about everything that's important that I own digitally is on that is on that because it's the safest place to keep things. Right. So yeah, all the .NET rocks archives, all the, all so, the everything else. So yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely take a, a backup. I had a, uh, I had a card. Uh, uh, I remember, what was it? Uh, I think ESDI and old drive controller technology. Was that what it was called? Yeah. SD. Some, yeah. Yeah. It was the big, before PCI, it was sort of the last gasp of ISA before we went to PCI. There was the wide bus version of ISA called e- EISA or SD. Uh, maybe it was that. Yeah. Anyway, so I had a card and all of a sudden I had a drive that was acting flaky. It like everything vanished and I tried to do a check disk and stuff came back and then it vanished again. And it turned out it was the card, not the drive that had crashed. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, I've had that experience with cards that killed drives. Yeah. And of course it decided to do this like several days before I was due to ship my very first product, a a prototype of the custom control factory to Microsoft marketing so they could promote it. (laughs) Of course. And of course the first tape set didn't work. Naturally, because tapes never work. But fortunately, uh, I had a second tape set that worked on another drive that that I had at the place I was working. So right. I was able to rescue. But that was as close as close as I'd ever come to complete ultra ultimate total complete loss failure. of everything. Uh, I've the number of times I've had those sorts of backplane failures. Like I've even had a NetApp, which is a very expensive drive array system where the backbone of the NetApp was the problem and it was blowing up the, the drives. We'd replace the drives and reconfigure things and it'd do it again. Yes. And it took a while before it's like, wow, it's the backplane. Repla- had to replace the entire subsystem. But that's very, you never learn that lightly. Like it, no, you there was don't. a whole lot of crying in yes. between that failed the first time and okay, now we really have it fixed. Yes. There were several times where we lied to ourselves and thought we had it figured out. Yes. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Dan, what was your first computer? (laughs) Okay, so my first computer was um, an AIM-65 from Rockwell International. Now this was, it was a little, it was on a board and it had a little keyboard. It had a 40 character LED display. It had a tiny 40 column printer and it had a tape interface. and Cassette tape. Cassette tape. And it cost 375 but a friend of mine knew someone who worked at Brockwell, so I got it for $175. So deal. A college, it was a deal. Wait, $175? Yes. I think wow. that was the price. And the processor? Uh, 6502. Classic. Classic. But now, okay, this is the coolest part of it. Now, keep in mind, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I, had a, I had a basic for it. I, I got, I think it was either, I can't remember if it was a ROM basic or whether it was a tape basic, but right. that doesn't matter. But my biggest success with that was not uh, a software. It was a hardware uh, achievement. So uh, this thing came with like 16K of RAM. Right. And 16K of RAM was barely enough to hold basic. Yeah. So... As long I, as you didn't have an OS as well, you were fine. And of course, <laughs> it, I don't know if there were any add-on cards available, but if they were, they sure cost too much. Yeah. But the Memory interface... Memory was really expensive back then. Right. So, but the interface was defined, you know, for... for ha- add-on hardware. So right. I was a, a young electrical engineer. I wasn't even graduated yet. I was learning <laughs> digital electronics. 
And so what I did was uh, I was able to get a hold of some 16K by one chips. Right. And I designed my own dynamic RAM card. Now, keep wow. in mind, this is the old DRAM that you have to like have the times just right, yeah. you know, and, and, and refresh it just right and, and all this kind of stuff. nine chips to the bank. And, and nine chips, the whole works. So I designed it, I wire wrapped it, and I debugged it. And get this, I did the debugging and got it working with just a voltmeter. Wow. I didn't have you a need, scope. You needed a scope for no, that. I would figure out what their signals were going there by looking at the relative voltage and when, figuring out the approximate duty cycle. Whether you're getting in the latch or not yes. on time. And, you need a scope for that. You're yeah, not supposed no, to do that. With, I, you're, I, and I presume this with a needle, too. So you're looking at how far the needle jumps? Yes. I, I looked at how far the needle jumped to get an idea. Okay, well, this is probably getting one signal about you know 30% duty cycle. Right. So it's probably coming you're in about RMS here. You're doing RMS calculations for gating. Yes. That's wrong. <laughs> you don't do that. When you're a sergeant student that's, that's what you what do, you do. <laughs> so but but once i finally got it debug i couldn't believe i got it working it, it worked perfectly it was fantastic how much memory 48k another 40 bring it, yeah added, bring it up to 64. to 64k yeah yeah because that was all the, and i i remember index indirect addressing in the 6502 it's a very tough way to map to work with memory i i hand built this case from like aluminum sheet aluminum i had i had like the, the power supply was handcrafted. You know, I had, you know, a whole, I, I could, I used what was cheap. So I wouldn't use like one big electrolytic capacitor. I'd use a dozen wired in parallel. Right. Because those are what, what I could get. Right. It was, it was a total, total hack job. It was a lot of fun. And I was very proud of that. My first real hardware project. Yeah. And a great, obviously a very cool machine. But then back then, the norm was, building your own software. It wasn't anything else. You, you weren't buying software from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It just, what were you going to write? Where, where could you find it? And, and magazines published the code because you only had 16K. That's like five pages. Go type it in. That's right. That's right. You know, sometimes ones and zeros. There there was the, the scheme where they'd have like, this, somebody was selling software with barcodes. Right. right. And, and you'd, you'd buy this barcodes. light reader and you'd scan the barcode and that's how so you'd read in your software. The and they tried publishing software that way. <laughs> crazy stuff back then wow man i thought i was you know reaching back you know i can never win the i remember when contest with anybody because you know trs 80 model 4 was my first computer i remember and the trash was, 80 yeah i know that's what trash we called 80 it. fine that's what, no, okay, I loved whatever it. whatever that's what we called no it. problem i'm not offended because I'm, I'm bigger than that. You should see the look on your face. <laughs> trash 80. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, trash 80. All right. Yeah, yeah. Screw you. <laughs> no. Um, but, so, but you know, every time I say, yeah, I had a TRS-80 Model 4, everybody goes, oh, when I was using punch cards and we had to write the ones and zeros with the chromium tip tweezers. <laughs> no, I, 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 I missed the punch card era. Uh, except I used to I used to take them and I'd build sculptures out of them when I was a kid. You know, just, <laughs> I, I, you know like it was like construction paper, except it was better because they were they were really rigid. They were much more stiff. rigid than the cheap construction paper. Do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Right. So I, I'd build these these cool like with things that marbles would roll down them and stuff. It was just <laughs> lots. Yeah, you know, I was an engineer even back then. All right. What was the first program you wrote that you were really proud of? Wow. Um, I remember the first, first, okay. So it, in a way, this is how I learned programming. So uh, I was into ham radio back then. And of course, the first program that I think any ham radio person would write back then was one that would beep. Practice Morse practice code. Practice Morse code. So yeah. you could practice Morse code. So this was in uh, like engineering 1A, introduction to basic. 
And I would figure out how to write. And the goal was to write, you know, I had a competition with a friend and the goal was to write this program that would do random groups of Morse code as small as possible. Right. Oh, okay. Right. The idea was as short as possible. So, you know, our first attempt was like, you know, coming up with random letters and then if A, then, if B, then, if C, then, right? right. You know, yeah. real long program. And we'd go back and forth. And I finally won. I got it down to two lines of basic. <laughs> It was it was nuts. It Those was must have been some crazy ass lines. It though. was it, some crazy ass lines. It was it had a data statement with dots and dashes in it, and then it had uh, and maybe that's where my love of encryption came in because right. you know it would read this thing and parse it through some sort of a scheme and and it was just you know. I remember back then the big thing was the one line program. Mm-hmm. It was very a very popular thing to do was to try and cram as much functionality into a single line of we code as so you could. We were so stupid back then, well, weren't we? We? <laughs> yeah, we had nothing else to do. Yeah, no, and nobody, every bite counted. They hadn't invented readability yet. I remember we used to do uh, contests at Crescent Software who could write you know the smallest program, to, the smallest Hello World program. And we had uh, uh, somebody who wrote it in 12 bytes. <laughs> Echo, <Wow>. hello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and in think along those lines, same lines back then, I remember uh, not that long ago, less than 10 years ago, a magazine uh, editor contacted me and saying, hey, we're going to do an April Fool's Day issue. Have you got any silly ideas? And I remember doing the whole one line thing. So and I discovered, I said, well, we used to do this thing with one line, but it's Visual Basic now. And then I discovered Visual Basic still supported the colon. This is back in the VB3 days. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a one-line program, which was a variation on one I'd done years and years earlier, that created the concept of a 10 by 10 grid, picked an opening, that, that was, this was the way out, and then you could walk around inside the space going north, south, east, west, and if you got closer to the opening, it would give you different messages to say you're getting closer to you, finally find your way out. And, and so I sent it off to him and said, like, this is the dumbest, I know it's really stupid, it's the only thing I could think of, but I got this one-line thing that, that does this little maze thing, and you know, I, I know it isn't any good, but it's the only thing I can think of. I hope that's okay. And he comes back with your stupid little one-line thing just sucked up an hour of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Pre- predecessor to solitaire. That's it. That's so, it. Uh, I programmed uh, on an old Wang basic machine once upon a time. And... Uh, uh, I wrote, now, what size was the machine? Was it, it was a main, it, mainframe mini personal no, computer? Mini, I don't know. The equivalent of a personal computer to have okay. 16K of RAM and, a, and basic and a, another okay. one of those cassette interface things. And uh, what was interesting is, you know, you know the life simulation, classic life simulation? Yes. Everybody knows that. Yeah. I don't know if they still know it, but, uh, you know, so I wrote a version of that. Older and, version of Sim stuff, Sims yeah. Life, Sim City, whatever. And it was very, very slow. But then I discovered that this particular machine had, uh, it, you know, loops and stuff was pretty slow, but logical operations, it could do a whole string at a time, right? Ands, ors, xors, and so on. So if a string contained byte data, you could or two strings together really fast. Cool. So I ended up implementing a version of life that instead of using loops and additions and so on, it all used shifts and logical operations to figure out what happened next. And the thing screamed. Ah. Hey, have you seen Armageddon? No. This is a game, uh, you know, Tron, the movie, I right? I know Tron, yes. So it's a Tron game, basically, where you try to encircle and ensnare the other cars or whatever they are. And it's open source and it's free. And the reason I brought it up is because in the vocal booth, we have two booths at 
Quah productions that are facing each other, and they each of them has a monitor and keyboard that controls the same machine, so that we can have people doing you know the simultaneous kind of stuff and recording the screens. So uh, one of my engineers installed Armageddon on it, so we could just test out the computer and the audio and all that, and that sucked up some serious time of my life that I'll never get back. But it's one of those things, you know, it's like a retro kind of game. If you're feeling nostalgic, go download it, Armageddon. So the I have discovered, um, I think, I, I don't know if I mentioned it to you yesterday evening. It might have been someone else. I've discovered the perfect time sucker thing that you don't have to feel guilty about. Oh. I got a Nintendo Wii. Oh, no. Dude, me too. Yes. I love the Wii. Uh, I love it, and and I play it not like sitting down and waving things. I'm up there swinging yes. and and so on. You have the sports. I I love sports. Yeah, we sports. I, tennis is my favorite so far. All right, so listen, I have uh, me too. I have a four year old daughter, and waking her up in the morning has been particularly difficult. She's four. Get up, and so this is what happens now. Clara, wake up. Eh. Clara, pancakes. Nah, nah. <laughs> Clara, let's play tennis. Okay! <laughs> and she kicks my ass in tennis. She's four. Mm-hmm. She's got it going on. Well, the beautiful thing about it, other than having the most brilliant user interface I think I've ever seen. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a stunning piece of work. I'm in awe. Is that I can play that. And I have an excuse. I don't have to feel guilty about it. That's right. You know, yes, there are a million getting things I could exercise. be doing, but I'm getting some exercise. That's right. And and that's brilliant. And it is brilliant. It's the first video game that's like physical that you can actually play. Right. Other than DDR, which is the, a game designed to embarrass everybody oh, who's over yeah. the age of fifteen. You yeah, know? my eleven-year-old does a good job of that. Dance, right. Dance Revolution. Right. Yeah. Uh, you yours haven't figured that one out yet. Well, for some reason, I'm getting into a pair of teenage daughters that have yet to have a video game machine. They're still content with their uh, their Game Boys, so I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying. Do they have cell phones? Yes. There you go. There you go. Dan, the, the hour has just flown by. I could sit here and talk for another hour. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. We should do this again sometime. And search.net.com. That's what it's all about. Yeah, check it out. Check it out. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.